I rise uh, to solemnly inform the House in the presence of family and our military chiefs that the 100th Victoria Cross has been awarded to an Australian. Uh, this award is to the late Corporal Cameron Baird, already an iconic figure in our army who had earlier received the Medal of Gallantry. As the citation reads, his Victoria Cross is for most conspicuous acts of valour, extreme devotion to duty, and ultimate self-sacrifice at Gorchak village in Uruzgan province, Afghanistan, as a commando team leader. He was on his fifth special forces tour when he was killed in the action for which he was awarded the Victoria Cross. On the 22nd of June last year, in the first phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird and his team came under heavy fire on three separate occasions from well-prepared enemy positions. In the initial encounter, six enemy combatants were killed and weapons caches were captured. In subsequent encounters, Corporal Baird charged enemy positions and neutralised them with grenade and rifle fire. By drawing fire on himself repeatedly, he enabled other members of his team to regain the initiative. In the second phase of the engagement, Corporal Baird then led an assault on an enemy-held compound. On three separate occasions, under heavy fire, he forced the door of a building. Twice he was forced to withdraw, to reload and then to clear his rifle. For the third time he entered the building, again drawing fire away from his comrades who were able to secure the objective. Tragically, he was killed in this final assault. Madam Speaker, words can hardly do justice to the chaos, confusion and courage that were evident that day. The comrade who was with him testifies. I have witnessed many acts of leadership and courage under enemy fire during my operational service. Corporal Baird's initiative, fearless tenacity and dedication to duty in the face of the enemy were exemplary and an absolute inspiration to the entire team. I was witness to the ultimate sacrifice. Madam Speaker, I salute Corporal Cameron Baird, VCMG. We all salute him and his almost equally remarkable comrades. In this place, we don't face danger. So we can hardly claim him as our brother, but we do acclaim him as our hero. We can hardly imagine what the likes of Corporal Baird and his comrades go through but we stand in awe of their extraordinary courage, the extraordinary courage of these amazing men who serve our country and keep us safe.
globalrecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Hendricks. Co-hosting with me for this episode was Tim Kozak. Tim is a U.S. Army veteran who now runs the Veterans Project, which is, in a nutshell, a photographic essay where he follows different veterans and details some of their story for their transition out of the military and also some of their time in the military. And he does these really good photographs and portraits of these veterans. And um, Tim has been on a few times before uh, co-hosting as well as uh, bringing guests onto the show. So uh, be sure to check out the Veterans Project on social media, or you can check out his website at thevetsproject.com. Uh, last week's episode, I had on retired SAS major Dr. Dan Pronk, Australian SAS, and um, you know he shared a deployment story. We talked about some medical stuff, and it was a pretty cool episode. We got really good feedback from it. So going forward, uh, he's a he's a co-owner of a company called TACMED Australia, and they provide training and instruction. Uh, for law enforcement, civilians alike, and uh, military as well over in Australia. So what's going to be happening shortly is I'm going to be releasing some articles on my website from TACMED, uh, you know, talking about different uh, type of scenarios uh, that involve uh, tactical medicine, bleeding control, stuff like that. So be on the lookout for that. Also, we're looking to get some veteran writers on the website. So if anyone's interested in that, or if you know anyone who might be interested in writing uh, articles, it could be military history stuff or kind of current events, uh, things like that. Uh, just send an email to podcast at globalrecon.net and we can talk a little further there. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm looking to get the articles uh, flowing again. I might do some writing myself as well. Uh, when I first launched my website, uh, we were pumping out a lot of articles, so we're trying to get back into that. So, on for this week's episode is retired Australian Special Forces veteran Eddie Robinson, and Eddie Robinson is a, a soldier with the Two Commando Regiment. You know, he's had a couple of deployments, uh, kind of had an interesting career. So, uh, now I'll get into the conversation that me and Tim Kozak from the Veterans Project had with Eddie Robinson. Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, on with me for this week's podcast is uh, Tim Kozak is back on the podcast with the Veterans Project. Uh, Tim, how's it going? Great to be with you, John. Thanks for having me on. No problem. And on with us is Eddie Robinson. Eddie is a Australian Special Forces soldier. Um, Eddie, how's it going, man? Hey, John. Hey, Tim. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on, brother. All right. So, um, all right. So, Ed, you know, we, we've spoken off the air. Um, you you served with two commando uh, in the Australian military, which is a special operations unit. And, um, you know, can can you talk a little bit about, you know, your time before the military or, or what got you to to join up and then talk about your time throughout the military? Yeah, no, no problem, John. Uh, 
So, yeah, I grew up uh, in regional Australia. Um, so in a small city between, you know, two capital cities on the east coast. Uh, both my grandparents served in the Second World War. Uh, one was an a Air Force pilot. He flew uh, Catalina flying boats in the Pacific. And my other was a officer in the Australian Army. He was in the artillery. Um, and he served, saw service in the Pacific as well. Uh, my my uncle is a Vietnam veteran. Um, he was conscripted, uh, fought with the Australian uh, infantry over in Vietnam during national service. And, uh, yeah, I guess I just I had a pretty normal uh, upbringing in, in country, regional Australia, uh, playing sport. Uh, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Uh, I was pretty good at uh, – I was actually pretty good at – uh, alpine sports because I, I live close to the mountains so um, I actually competed in school sports and, and went on to do some national stuff and that was an option but um, being down here you know alpine sports aren't really as big as they are obviously in Europe and over your way so there wasn't much of a career option with that so you know the military had always been uh, something that I was very interested in just because of the family um, history so when I finished school, I spent a year just doing general work, um, worked in a textiles factory for a while, did a bit of travel, and then uh, I enlisted into the military in a year after that, and that was 97. And, uh, yeah, I started off, um, we had this program down here, which was um, almost like a, it was like a, a guard, sort of like an active guard, like you guys call it. National Guard, we call it the Army Reserve. It was a it was an Army Reserve program where you still did basic and then you your school of infantry, but then you were posted to a a, a unit uh, on guard duty, basically, or you know reserve duty until um, you either transferred or or you you know sign onto a full time contract. And I, I did I did that for a, a couple of years, and then I I decided to enlist into the uh, regular army because it just wasn't really what I expected and uh yeah I, I got posted into 4RAR uh, commando which was at the time uh what is now known as the second commando regiment that, that was its name at the time and it had just gone through a, a restructure uh because there was a big deployment coming up to east timor so it was a sf unit uh with a commando capability but they needed to bolster the numbers at that stage uh, to, to deploy to East Timor on peacekeeping operations. So I went in there as a grunt. Uh, we were given the opportunity to apply for selection. Uh, and, yeah, that's that's pretty much how I, I uh, found my way into that realm. So now the 2 Commando is a special operations unit, but it, it – became the two commando right it it started off originally as the unit you first entered and then at some point during the war in afghanistan uh there was a, a, a need i guess okay for a, another special operations unit to i guess to kind of share the load of of uh the operational requirements well what actually happened john was uh the, the unit was known as four Battalion Royal Australian Regiment, which is is a designation, and then as a commando commando regiment, what they decided was uh, just due to the you know the nature of the way that the unit was structured that they basically it, it 
needed to go through a name change and, and a slight structural change as well. So on the 19th of June 2009, the unit actually officially changed its name from 4 RAR, Royal Australian Regiment Commando, to now the 2nd Commando Regiment. So it is the same unit. It has just gone through a name change. However, it has gone through, um, you know, a slight metamorphosis over the last few years uh, just with regards to the changing, you know, changing threats and uh, roles and responsibilities that the unit now undertakes internationally. Eddie, let me... Let me ask you, you know, you, t- you talked about stepping in. You said you had two, both your grandparents, both your grandpas were in World War II, you said? Correct. Okay, and, you're, and an uncle that fought in Vietnam, right? Yeah. Okay. So, you know, was there this sense of uh, destiny in a way where you, you knew that that's what you wanted to do, you know, very early? You know, you talked about being working in the textile factory and, um, you know, obviously you didn't feel a sense of fulfillment from that, but... Was there was there just a sense the whole way that you know you were going to do that you were going to be a grunt and then you were going to go into the special operations world or did that just kind of unfold itself as you as you got into the military? Nah, so I finished school a little bit early, so I I, I finished my my final year of high school uh, when I was seventeen. I, I was seventeen and a half. So, um, you know, like I wasn't legally allowed to, you know, go and go and buy a beer or anything like that. And I, I, I still had a bit of, I still had a bit of sort of, I guess, time up my sleeve. I, as I said, I was interested in the, um, you know, the exploring the opportunity with the Alpine sports. What happened there is I, I actually was competing. I competed internationally and I sort of hit a, uh, hit a point where it was like, look, if I don't get a major sponsorship, um, there's no way that, you know, we, I can afford to continue this. Uh, got back, and that's where I sort of was just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I mean, I'd always had a very keen interest in the military. I, you know, my my grandparents, uh, the ex Air Force one in particular, because uh, the other one passed away when I was quite young. He used to tell me quite a lot, of, and uh, I grew up around quite a lot of his. Um, Air Force buddies that, you know, he, he continued a lifelong friendship with. So, you know, I, I had a lot of military books when I was a kid. We, you know, used to run around playing with, you know, toy pistols and plastic rifles and, you know, the, the same old story that you hear a lot of a lot of guys like us talk about. Um, I think, you know, working in that textiles factory, I mean, I did, I, I remember distinctly, I, I saw an ad on the television and, I you know, it was, it was a typical recruiting ad. And I thought, you know, I, I got to do more than what I'm doing at the moment. Like this is this is this is the goal, you know. Like this is something that I can sort of get into and 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 explore. And then once I got in, it just you know, it just sort of bit me. Um, and yeah, I, I I just all I like when I first joined, all I wanted to do was 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 basically be a paratrooper. Um, my uncle had told me a lot of stories, you know, Vietnam. Not that anyone parachuted into Vietnam from Australia. But, um, yeah, like it was just – it was always it was always an interest. And then once I made that decision, then, it, yeah, it just became, I guess, a bit of a destiny. Gotcha. So now you're in the Army full-time. You joined up with the commando unit 
and it 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 made that switch to two commando while you were in, right? Yeah. So uh, when I was posted into the unit, that was in uh, early two thousand, very early two thousand, and uh, that was when the unit was had basically been given uh, orders to prepare for a, a, that peacekeeping deployment to East Timor. So there was a, a large influx of, of guys like us, you know, um, all qualified infantrymen, but guys that had come from, you know, straight from, uh, you know, depot company, the rifle rifle training company or the infantry training school. Um, some guys that had transferred from reserve units and, and even come from other infantry units just to bolster the numbers. And, yeah, it was a pretty interesting time. Uh, there was a lot of change going on. There were guys that, you know, we were given the opportunity to, to – um, to attend the what at the time was called the uh, Special Forces Barrier Testing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I applied. A, a whole heap of us applied. We, we were trained up for it. And um, we basically we did that we did that barrier testing and then we were given the opportunity to, to progress onto the um, commando training continuum, basically. So that was put on hold for the deployment. Uh, after the deployment came back, there was another sort of, restructure um obviously the deployment occurred in 2001 and uh during that time that's when 9-11 well, september 11 occurred and that was that obviously like threw everything into array like you know not just with the with our unit but also like internationally obviously and so yeah we 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 came back and uh the unit went through another change so it's just it, it's been a constant sort of evolution um throughout basically since the, the war on terror kicked off. Uh, yeah. So, Ed, now that, you know, I know the way that most American soft units are structured, when people go into these units, they have, like, a specific role. You know, like a, a, a unit like the Green Berets, they're... It's a twelve-man team. Everybody has their their specialty, and then people are cross-trained. Do you guys in Two Commando have a similar setup in terms of, you know, like you're a machine gunner, another guy is a medic? Is is that how it works? Yeah. So obviously, uh, you know, within a within a, I know with the U.S. military, the guys have an MOS, so you know they're, they're either a grenadier or a gunner, or, you know, depending on the unit. With regards to unit roles, uh, so yeah. Within, within a commando, once you, you're qualified as a commando operator, uh, during that training continuum, you, you undergo a number of different courses. And yeah, look, there are a lot of parallels to US soft units, not just the ODA, uh, but also, you know, 75th, um, the, you know, other, other special mission units. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the SEALs in some regard. It's, it's our unit has almost become a little bit of a hybrid in some regards. We, we hold domestic counterterrorism capability. Um, we share that with um, um, the Special Air Service Regiment. Uh, we we are an independent unit to Special Air Service Regiment. We 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 overlap in some regards. However, they have a specific niche and you know a role in which roles in which they undertake. Whereas two commando, basically two commando holds a number of different. Uh, skill skill sets and what's called like OPA, like operational order serials. So anything ranging from large-scale disruption operations, uh, direct action missions, 
uh, protective security missions for high-ranking military and, and members of the Australian government. Uh, you know, even even other roles like, you know, traditional roles like the ODA do, even though the ODA are very specialised at what they do with regards to working with Indigenous, uh, we, we still have a capability to operate and integrate with partner force and, you know, achieve pretty pretty good results on the battle space. The, with regards to the independent skill sets of the guys, um, you basically go through a you go through a selection and training continuum, which is fairly standardised for most operators, and then you get to a point where you obviously go to you, you get a specialty skill set. So, and some guys hold multiple. So, you might have a guy that's assigned as a as a as a combat medic or a, a you know an advanced combat first aider, and then you might have a guy that is obviously assigned to. Uh, more specialised breaching. Everyone's qualified in breaching. Uh, everyone's qualified in, in in a level of um, TCCC, like what you were talking about with uh, Dan. But then other guys will obviously go into different areas and, and most guys are able to integrate, depending on their level of training, if they get moved into another area, they're able to sort of slot in and integrate and, and yeah, it's, it's pretty flexible like that. Uh, cool, and and you so you've done you know you've done work with two commandos. Uh, could you talk about what you've done in in more recent, like just you know, kind of brief touch on it? Yeah, sure. So, um, the first well, with two commando, like the original unit, I, I deployed obviously on a United Nations peacekeeping uh, to East Timor for six months. That was a it was a pretty benign deployment. I mean, it was it was good work. Um, we achieved good results and uh, came back. And then, uh, yeah, like I, I spent another couple of years in the unit um, just, you know, doing further training and, and courses. And then, uh, yeah, I, more recently I, I've, I've done a number of combat deployments to Afghanistan with uh, the Special Operations Task Group, which is two commando regiment is, a, is obviously a, an integral part of that. And, yeah, I've, I've also done a uh, protective security detail mission, uh, which was, you know, that, that was a, an extended um, PSD mission. And, yeah, that's about it. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's been – and in between there, you know, obviously um, coming back, returning, you know, uh, redeploying back to Australia and then um, being on, you know, domestic counterterrorism duties, which is, is what every operator in the the unit does there's a cycle and um yeah they basically they'll deploy and then you know they'll either come back um you know go on their domestic counterterrorism or they'll or they'll continue training uh other candidates that you know are going to come into the unit yeah you know it, it's kind of interesting because in the states um you know by by law uh special ops isn't or military aren't supposed to um you know like operate on american soil yeah so for for those type of duties there are you know like specialized um uh SWAT teams like the uh FBI's hostage rescue team yeah and and they would work like counterterrorism missions here in the states uh so it's kind of interesting how that works but i guess 
they put you guys on um is that done by design like in in terms of trying to balance out the uh the training cycles and deployment cycles like like almost like i don't want to say taking a break cuz obviously it's work but um is that how it works like you'll you'll train deploy come home and then go on a a domestic cycle yeah so uh when when you when you're uh yeah like you you basically you're on operations uh you 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 wrap up your operations you come home there's obviously a period of time where you uh you get an opportunity to have some some time off and then you either return to um yeah like you know you you're allocated to another area in, you know within the unit as part of your duties you either stay within the company that you're in and continue with what their plans are that could be you know running training packages for you know, training courses for, you know, future candidates. Uh, or you might uh, rotate into the into the uh, counterterrorism response. So yeah, that's that's basically it. Uh, the, the difference there, and this is this is all documented, it's 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 open source um, media. You know, the, the, in order for uh, in order for our guys to operate in Australia, that there, there has to be a certain mandate. So yeah, you're correct. Like it's not, we don't have um, you know military guys. Um, you know, it's 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 exactly the point that you just made. You know, like there's specialist units within law enforcement that take care of, of their things, and then you know our our unit is used as a national force of last resort to resolve any domestic counterterrorism that 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 cannot be resolved, and that's that's where the mandate comes in. And that, that's all I can really say about that. Hey, so Eddie, I was uh, curious, you know, about uh, some of that time overseas. And uh, obviously with a lot of the veterans that I interviewed, that's, it's, it's a lot about the transitional process, but I'm, I'm also curious as to, you know, some of those times overseas. So um, do you have any particular deployment stories you, uh, you remember really well or, or would like to share? Yeah, no problem. Uh, you know, I've there's there's a you know there's always a couple of ones that you know you you don't really like to talk about, and then there's some that you do. I'll um, I'll, you know, I mean, I'm happy to give you one of each if you like. Uh, yeah, sure. So, I guess um, my my first combat deployment to Afghanistan, uh, we were yeah we were in a, a company. <clears throat> You know, a lot of guys uh, that had already deployed over there before. Some guys that had deployed to other regions, and yeah, it was it was a it was a good crew. Um, we had a pretty successful trip. We we, we were pretty busy. Um, we were doing a lot of a lot of uh, vehicle mobility operations at that time. That was before the IED threat really sort of jumped up. And uh, yeah, like towards the end of the deployment, um, we were. We went on a direct action mission, and uh, we were targeting some some uh, guys that were facilitating IED manufacture. And yeah, look, it was just a typical job. We we sort of drove through the night, um, you know, got to an area, staged our vehicles, and then commenced our foot infiltration onto the onto the target. And yeah, it was a pretty it was a pretty long walk. And yeah, once we once we sort of got to where we needed to go, we 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 basically got to the area, you know, we started commencing our clearance and, and we made entry into this particular compound and, uh, yeah, there was a, there was a quite a large uh, 
significant firefight once we made entry. And, yeah, one of our guys, he, he was the first guy through the door. He was a very uh, well-respected well member of the unit. He was the first guy through the door and, you know, he, he managed to identify where one of the particular threats was and and that, that in itself, I think, saved the lives of the rest of us because, you know, as stated um, previously by a lot of guys, you know, like when you come in, when you make entry into a room, it is a pretty, you know, it's, it's a pretty dynamic entry and, and, and that those first couple of seconds, you know, it, it can really count. So, you know, he, his actions on at that time, you know, like, saved a lot of lives because it was, you know, it was obviously in the middle of the night and, you know, visibility wasn't the best, you know, even with nods. And, uh, yeah, so basically that happened and the threat was neutralised and there were another couple of threats within the compound and it, it basically just it continued and continued, you know, guys returning fire. And it was just, it was a very difficult situation just because of the, the way in which the compound was designed and where the people were positioned it was a it was a good setup and uh, and yeah basically um some pretty drastic action had to be taken and yeah one, one of the one of the guys like he was actually my acting team commander on the night yeah he's he subsequently passed on he, he was a another well-respected uh, operator in our unit a guy by the name of cam baird cameron baird he he basically yeah, he basically took action and, and, you know, started fragging a couple of rooms and, and that sort of helped us get the momentum to, to, to get the clearance on the go. And, yeah, by the time we, we finished it, it was the, there was quite a lot of ordnance in there, you know, heavy weapons, ammunition, IED components and that sort of thing. So, you know, we were fairly lucky because, you know, well, not lucky in regards to we lost a, a valued member of our team and unit, but we were lucky that we didn't lose more guys because of his actions. And yeah, you know that that basically finished that uh, that that assault was that clearance was continued and finished. And then yeah, we basically had to foot exfil out of there because we couldn't get helo assets on station because there was a, another call sign that had some wounded guys from a, a coalition partner in another valley within the AME circle, so the medical evacuation circle. So, yeah, we, we basically had to, to load our friend up and on a talon and, and, and carry, him, carry him back through to where we, we'd staged our uh, vehicles. And, yeah, look, it was a very, you know, it was a heavy night. You know, there was a, it was, you know, it was, a, it was a really, you know, obviously like a lot of, a lot of stuff was going on and, and we got the job done and, and we got, got our friend out of there and, and Look, you know, I mean, it, yeah, it was a terrible, terrible night, but we also, you know, witnessed, I guess, the best of, you know, and working with your, you know, your fellow operators, you know, because like, everyone just got in and got the job done, got him out. It was a long walk out. And, uh, yeah, once we got back, we, we all got to pay our respects before we, we, we got him evacuated. So, yeah, that, yeah, even though, even though it was a, it was a pretty, pretty bad night it was it was also really good to see you know so many guys banding together and and you know getting that getting their buddy out of there in, in some pretty hard conditions so yeah that that's it
And and you mentioned uh, Cameron, and um, obviously he was very individually important to you. Um, and so, could you talk a little bit about him and in his heroism and how much he means to the Australian forces? How much he meant to you as a brother? Yeah, sure. Look, you know, Cam was Cam was an iconic member of our unit. He was a pretty larger than life character. He he. He played. He played our version, our Australian rules football, which is like our equivalent of your national league. He he played in the junior divisions of that, and again, he he had a very promising, potentially future professional career with the with the national well Australian football league. And the year after he he or the year he finished school, he he was. He, he missed out on being drafted because his shoulder was injured and he had to have a pretty serious shoulder injury. And he, he thought he was going to get picked up because after his rehabilitation, but he missed out. And I think it was a bit of a, a disappointment for him. So he, he decided to join the army and he went in, he just signed up as an infantryman and he, he basically came into the unit around about the same time I did and, and a lot of the other guys. And yeah, Cam, like he... <clears throat> He was just a really well-respected, well-liked guy in the unit. He he just got on with the job. He he he, he wasn't uh, like a lot, you know a lot of guys look like a kit kit junkies like they love all the kit and yeah. he he just he just he just ran with issued equipment, um, issued boots. You know we used to give him a hard time because he you know he never really sort of bought anything to trick up his weapon or, or anything like that. But that was the kind of guy he was. He was just a no-nonsense guy. Um, he was, you know, his friends, he had a lot of friends uh, within within the military community, not just in the Special Operations Unit. But, yeah, we just, we developed the friendship during our East Timor deployment. And, yeah, we just, I guess just the way that our careers went, uh, we ended up being pretty much in the same, uh, um, you know, team. Or, or company unit or subunit for most of our deployments, in fact, all of our deployments. And, uh, yeah, I served on that particular night that I just discussed. Uh, I served underneath him uh, as a defence marksman at the time within the team. And, yeah, just watching him, you know, his actions that night, you know, like he, he, he was just – he was a, he was a, a really uh, very professional – I mean, all the guys are professional, but he was just an exceptional warrior – and uh, yeah, he was just very highly regarded and well respected. And and you know, he obviously went on for other um, other actions, which you know, subsequently he was awarded the the Victoria Cross of Australia, which is is our highest award for valor. It's you know, it's our equivalent of the the Medal of Honor. Um, that was on his final deployment. And unfortunately, when he was awarded that de- uh, on that deployment, the action. For which he was awarded that uh, medal, he was killed. So yeah, he's sort of gone down as a bit of a a legend within the Australian military and also the Australian special operations realm. So he he was the is he like the most uh, decorated Australian soldier of, of the modern era, or or he's one of the most decorated? No, he he's 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 up there at the top. There, there's there's a couple of other guys that have 
you know, had pretty exemplary careers within the special operations regiment as well. But he, 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 he's for Afghanistan. He's, he's right up there, right up the top. We, we've only had four members of our military awarded the Victoria Cross of Australia. Two of them are members from the Special Air Service Regiment, and and one of the other guys is a is a guy from the uh, Australian Infantry Regiment. And then Cameron is the only commando to be awarded the Victoria Cross. And yeah, unfortunately, he he yeah he paid for it with his life, you know. And, and he, he not diminishing anyone else's awards, it it, it but he, he you know unfortunately he wasn't here to tell the tale. So it's our you know it's now our sort of duty to 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 tell his tale. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I know. Um, you know, since since the the wars in Afghanistan, uh, I, I don't think the Australians went to Iraq. Right? You guys only went to Afghanistan. No, no, no. That's um, we we had a contingent in Iraq. We we had another special operation or special forces task group that deployed to Iraq, and that was again members from the Special Air Service Regiment with some of our guys there too and yeah they they were they were involved heavily in the initial invasion in 2003 okay yeah you know it's, uh, iraq is interesting because uh, i'm reading a book now that's talking about the um like the rise of isis and um mm-hmm. kind of the roots of it and a, a lot of it has to do with the uh jordanian born terrorist uh his name is uh, was it Zawarki or Zawari? I, I forgot. Abu Musab Al Zakawi. There you go. Um, yeah. So you know the, the the book is kind of talking about his story and how he um. You know he was kind of like just like a street thug. I think at some point he went to prison and then he kind of became indoctrinated into um, kind of like a, a radical sect of Islam and then from there he just kind of and, and you know it's interesting because. In the when the U.S. presented its case to the United Nations to go to war in Iraq, he was a part of that. Like they they named him as one of the reasons why they should go into Iraq, and subsequently in doing that, they kind of made him one of the major players. And you know, all of a sudden, he's this big time, you know, jihadist leader, and and all these people are wanting to give him money and and travel to Iraq to fight for this guy when. You know, before this happened, he was just kind of a small, he was a leader of a small group. You know, it's kind of interesting how that works. Yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he was a, a street criminal in Jordan. And uh, you know, I think at one stage he owned a, a video rental store or something like that. And uh, yeah, he, he had been in prison. And then, uh, you know, obviously he, you know, he was radicalized or he already was radical and, yeah, like so many of those other guys, you know, he just turned up there to participate in all of the the carnage that was going on. And uh, yeah, I think you know it was great. It was great when they got in. You know, that was kind of a wild, kind of a wild time in Iraq because, um, and I remember a lot of my you know buddies going over there in the early days of the war. It was, it was like, okay, initial invasion, we took care of the the you know problem in Saddam, and then there was kind of that quiet you know almost that calm before the storm 
um, and everybody came rushing um, into the country. You know, whether it was the Chechens or um, one of my uh, one of the guys I knew was uh, actually killed by a Somali contingency in Samara. Um, but there, there, you know, there a lot of people don't realize that you know it's not just that Middle Eastern contingency. You know, it's, there there are people from all over that were coming, you know, in that 2004-2005 range to uh, to to uh, participate. Yeah, it's it's interesting because most people, you know, they maybe they don't pay attention to it or or whatever it is, but I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions in terms of, uh, you know, what was going on. Like a lot of people were like, oh, you know, the Americans over there fighting farmers and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, you know, anyone with any experience in, the, in actually being there or anyone who pays attention to what was happening would tell you right off the bat that that's wrong. And um, essentially, in a nutshell, what it was was you you, you had obviously the Iraqi people themselves, uh, some people felt slighted by the U.S. And and for whatever reason, they, they felt like they had to fight against American and coalition forces. And then you had... Um, a lot of foreign fighters, like you said, guys from Chechnya, Africans, um, people from other parts of the Middle East, and and kind of different terror groups were like just flooding into Iraq. And one of the things that this guy did was he he really kind of stoked the flames for the Shia Sunni kind of civil war that that ended up playing out in Iraq and. That that was part of his overall strategy to destabilize the area, with the Sunni terror groups uh, operating, like in the north of Iraq, northwest, and uh, the Shia in in the south, really where the Brit, where the Brits were mainly at, you know. So it was kind of an interesting dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he. Uh, oh, go ahead, Eddie. Oh, sorry, Tim. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, you're great, man. Go ahead. Uh yeah. I, look, my experience from Iraq was not from a military uh, perspective, but from, from a contracting perspective. I, I spent some time over there contracting. I had a, a break in service. And, uh, yeah, Tim, it's, it was right around that those time that you're talking about, I, I, you know, the 05 or 05, 06 period, uh, you know, where it was just pandemonium, like every morning, you know, before 10 o'clock, you know, sometimes we weren't allowed to move before, you know, 10 hundred hours, like 10 a.m., and because you were just waiting, especially on a Friday, you were just waiting for, to hear the the huge IEDs being detonated all around the place, and then you know second responders being targeted, and it was just, you know, look at yeah, it was it was I think you know for the guys on the ground in uniform that were were out there dealing with that stuff every day, um, you know, it it was just relentless, and you know a guy like Zakawi, you know he he was you know he he was the perfect. Uh, what am I going to say? Catalyst to 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 create that, make that situation even worse. You know, it was. I just remember. You know, we we get we get reports. You know, we we get our intelligence reports. You know, prior to road moves and whatnot, and, and we'd we'd be told about you know these you know mass graves being dis- discovered on the side of MSR Tampa. You know, and that in the middle of the night. You know, that that in the middle of the night, coaches full of people had turned up, and and it was just you know putting people on the side of the road and just executing them. And it was just, you know, it was, it was, it was madness. And, 
you know, people trying to, you know, fight a counterinsurgency war, which, you know, it's just, it's difficult at the best of times. And, you know, it was just a, there were so many groups over there, so many independent groups. And then not only that, you know, like even the, the militias and, you know, it was a, it was a very difficult situation during that time, you know, and, and you're, you're right, John, I think, you know, the, the creation of what is now referred to as, as ISIS, yeah, it was, it, it certainly um, tracked back to, to those times and, yeah. Listen, when I was joining Eddie, and, and, you know, I'm glad you hit on that because it was, you know, it was that 05, you know, I was like, I joined in 05, I was 17, and I still remember the, uh, you know, my drill sergeants were coming back from like that first tour, um, or like, you know, maybe they'd done, you know, they, they'd, they'd gone, they'd been over there for like a year and a half, you know, they'd done like an 18 month tour and they'd come back, um, because our tours in the army are obviously, uh, way too long, but they're, oh, yeah. he, he, uh, <laughs> they, they were coming back and you could just tell, you know, like it, it, it was Oh five and I was, you know, and, and you could just tell how it had affected them, you know, because that was really the first, uh, we were really the first trainees to fill the, the, uh, instructor's wrath, uh, you know, that those that had seen war. And, and so, um, you know, they were on high alert and I remember them telling us, Hey, listen, you know, our goal here, and they were saying this in a much heavier way, but you know, was, <laughs> like, we, you know, with, with a lot more F words and you know, like, oh, yeah. like, we don't, you know, we, we don't want any of you guys responsible. Uh, we don't want to be the ones responsible for any of you guys getting killed over there. Um, because, you know, a lot of them had seen heavy combat and it really started getting heavy about the time they were coming back. So, you know, it was just, it was Oh five, man. I remember, you know, I was signing up in the recruiter's office. He was like, uh, yeah, you definitely don't want to be a truck driver because like one in five of those guys are getting hit, you know, <laughs> like I was like one in five, like, what am I, what am I doing? You know? <laughs> so, so, uh, I mean that, that secretary in violence was a very real thing. And we had so many troops over there, you know, we had like 175,000 deployed, um, in country, I believe. Um, it, it was just so heavy at the time. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, it's interesting now because, uh, <clears throat> You know the 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 initial conflict in Syria spilled into Iraq, and you know through a bunch of different things happening. Uh, and, and one thing people don't—if people aren't uh, familiar with how things in the Middle East kind of work—things uh, are very fluid, and and alliances change like rapidly. So you know, one day one group is fighting, you know, against another group, and then they call the truth and they join up and then so you have all these shifting alliances and um the security situation wasn't great in iraq when america pulled out for the most part and they took advantage of that and really caused some havoc that we've seen in the last you know two and a half three years um but now you know with the push into um parts of northern iraq and and they're and they're getting they really got isis on the run but one of the issues with the way they fight is that, you know, even after they take, they retake all these cities, the the threat isn't diminished 100% because there would still be, you know, bombs going off and, and that sort of thing. And um, one thing I, I had a, uh, on on one of the early episodes of the podcast, I had a, uh, a vice news reporter on who spent a number of years in Iraq and um, 
And he was recently in Iraq when I, I think when the offensive started uh, with the uh, Iraqi Special Operations Forces, like he was embedded with them. And um, one of the issues that he was talking about was even after ISIS is defeated, uh, there's going to be some sort of power struggle in Iraq because a lot of these uh, groups, there's a lot of militia groups, and some of them are just straight up like kind of criminal syndicates while while others are, you know, very religious and, and they have opposing views to another group. So what he was saying is once ISIS is defeated and, and all the territory is taken back, there may be another kind of civil war within Iraq itself, you know. Right, and I think uh, I think um, Eddie would, uh, you know, attest to this. I'm not going to try to speak for you, Eddie, because you were on the special operations side, and I was just a, you know, main street grunt. But no, um, no, no, don't don't ever say that, Tim. Like you guys, <laughs> you guys did, you know, you guys did the hard yards too, man. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, man. But um, I, I think the I think the thing that that you know, ISIS to me is really an idea more than anything. And that's the dangerous part of, of, you know, of ISIS. So, so to even think, you know, if we took that territory back or whatever, I mean, the, the war is not even close to being over with them. And, uh, because we're really battling against them as an idea. And, and I think that's where they're the most dangerous is, is, is when they're, their backs up against the wall, you know, or if it if it really is, you know, I mean, I've seen a lot of these reports and a lot of them are coming off of Iraqi news sites. And, you know, and a lot of it for me is like, how much is even true? Um, you know, how much is, re- you know, what's really going on over there? Are they slipping through the cracks and kind of letting Iraqi troops take back certain portions? Well, that's that's Tim, sorry to, to jump in, but that no, that's exactly right what you just said. You know, I mean, the, one of the most effective tools with ISIS is, is again, like disinformation and propaganda. And they have really honed in their skills on that. And that's, I think, why they have had such success with recruiting so many people because, you know, they – they appeal, like you said, they appeal to people who are looking for an ideology, people that don't have much. You know, they've, they've grown up in a in, in war their whole life. And, yeah, sure, you know, when they see something, you know what it's like over there, like every guy over there has a smartphone, you know, like even though it's a war-torn country, everyone's got a smartphone and, and you know, they can very quickly get on to this online propaganda um, it's done very well. It's very polished. It appeals to these young, disillusioned, angry guys. And, uh, yeah, I guess it, that's right. You know, it is an idea and it is evolving. It, it's a constant evolution. I mean, sorry, back to what you were just saying, John, you know, with with regards to Abu Musab al-Zakawi, I mean, he, he, he was exactly what Tim just spoke about. You know, he, he, was, a, he was an opportunist criminal and... He, he pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda, but even bin Laden himself, who, you know, I don't even want to talk about that guy, but, like, he, he bin Laden himself distanced himself from him yeah. because he was just, he, he wasn't part of their ideology. And that, that goes back to the overall theme here. Like, it is a what you were saying. It's, it's just a number of different sects and groups and whatever, and, and some of them, uh, interlinked and there's a nexus between certain certain groups but yeah you know it's it is it's an, it's a it's a war of ideology hey eddie when were you uh last over there when was your last deployment to afghanistan i left afghanistan in 
with the military in 2000 and early 2012 and then I had a short period of time here and then I back in Australia and then I was back over there but working um, on a on a contract for a diplomatic uh, security team okay um, had they you know I've kind of been seeing these lately on the on some of the frontline reports but the Taliban is now having some well major problems with with uh, ISIS in Afghanistan, yeah. was that had that yet become an issue uh, when you were over there last, or or had you seen any Look, of that? When when I left, uh, I I left Afghanistan um, sort of around about the middle of two thousand and thirteen, and yeah, at that time the main problem there because I was based in the capital in Kabul, but the main problem in that region was was basically the Haqqani network, which is a is a Pakistani-based, uh, you know, insurgent network. Um, the ISIS, I think, I, I remember reading a report about ISIS and um, how they were trying to establish a foothold in Afghanistan, but just, due, again, it's completely different, you know, region, completely different, you know, religious, um, I guess, you know the, the Shia, the Sunni. Um, you know, but they, they they have a different brand, as you understand. There's it, a lot of people just think you know Islam is Islam, but there's so many different brands within it. You know, and I think when ISIS tried to establish a, a footprint over in uh, Afghanistan, initially, you know, they looked like they were going to have some uh, success, but then I think, from what I understand, they 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 didn't really have much of a chance of getting it going. Right. Yeah, I guess Afghanistan is pretty unique, even amongst, um, you know, a lot of these kind of like war-torn areas, you know, in the Middle East or Africa, uh, because Afghanistan, the, um, I believe that the Pashtuns are like the oldest tribal uh, group on, on the planet. I think like they, you know, they, they've been around for a long time and they don't, you know, even though they are, obviously they're, they're Muslims, um, some of their tribal traditions would take precedent over some, you know, some of their their, their Muslim their uh, Islamic customs. So it's kind of an interesting place uh, in in terms of that regard. But I, I guess a lot of like the Taliban were were Pashtuns, uh, you know, born and raised type of thing, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, Tim, do you want to talk about that or? Um, you know, you, you probably would know it better than I would. I was never in Afghanistan, so. <laughs> oh, my, yes, yeah, my, my bad, I was, my bad. I just, did, yeah. I just did the Iraq thing, so no, I was never, I never actually served in Afghanistan, so I let the, I let the people who were there talk about yeah. that. <laughs> uh, more power to you. Um, yeah, yeah look, uh, yeah, you're right, John, uh, the, the Pashtun tribe, yeah, it, it is, it is a, um, a very long uh, established, you know, tribal tribal community or, or group of people, and yeah, you, you are correct. They do have their own code. Um, they have their own, you know, tribal. Uh, I guess you say yeah, like code of code of practice, so to speak. You know, overall they are practicing Muslims. Uh, I guess you know, a, a, the closest thing I, I could probably story that I could relate to. Um, that your American audience would would understand would be um, the story of Marcus Luttrell. Um, you know, he he was he was basically uh, 
you know, the, the, the gentleman that took him in, well, the, the, the Afghan gentleman that took him in um, was basically um, bound by his tribal code of what's called the Pashtun Wali. And Pashtun Wali means that um, you, you may not harm a traveller, someone who's a traveller in your, in your region um, who is, you know, seeking shelter or is hurt. Um, and, and if you feed them, you cannot harm them, even if they are an enemy, so to speak, until the food has left their left their body. And it's it's very like it is a very complex. Um, I know I know it doesn't make a lot of sense. And and you know I remember when I was first reading about it before deploying, I, I it seemed quite unusual. But yeah, they yeah. they are they they do apply that and uh it's it's quite bizarre in some um, in some occasions you know like like warfare is you know i mean you it's 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 unrealistic at times you know you're sort of wondering what did that really happen it just seems unusual in a war zone but yeah i mean that that's that's exactly you know the pashtun tribe tribal culture yeah they're bound by their own code but uh, you know but islam is their is their is their religion so basically if if you're ever taken in by an afghan tribe after you eat, you know, try <laughs> hold your shit in as long as possible. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I, I'll be I'll be honest with you, John. When when I read about that, I thought exactly the same thing. And and some of the guys, you know, like what the, does that doesn't make sense? You know, I mean, like what guys trying to kill you? Um, but you know, if you're hurt and he offers you some food, you know, I oh, look, I'm, I'm not uh, making light of the situation, but yeah, like it's just, I, and I guess you know, again, you know, that that comes back to a, a pertinent point of uh, what you were talking about earlier with um, your guys, like with the the American ODA guys, and and how they are so, uh, you know, effective at what they do because they have that greater understanding of their indigenous forces, you know, whether or not it's, it's you know, they're operating with people in Southeast Asia or Europe or, you know, the Middle East, uh, they, you know, they, they get to know those people and understand so they can align with them, you know, train them, um, you know, con- conduct conduct their uh, differed missions and, 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 and operations and that sort of thing. And, that, and it, it, you know, it makes sense to know your enemy, you know, that, that was what Sun Tzu you know, that was one of his most important points in uh, the art of war was know your enemy. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing, you know, I, I would kind of catch some black from. And, and, you know, I had this mentality. I, I pitched in college, and so I played baseball. And one of the things that I always, you know, I would always, guys would give me flack over was like, man, you know, you're, you're like, you talk, you have too much respect for the other team. It was like, Listen, man, I always want to have the ultimate respect for whoever I'm facing. It was the same way when I was in Iraq with the Army. It's like my dad taught me growing up, very young, like, always, like, the guys were always like, why are you always reading about Al-Qaeda? Why are you always reading, you know, like, why are you reading the Quran? Why do you, you know, and it's like, um, you know, I'm a Christian, but I want to know these things. I want to have an understanding of the culture and, and, and the, and the uh, tribes around this area and, and what's going on because I feel like if I know those things, I have a better chance of, you know, of defeating them. Yep. And, and, and so I would get some flack, you know, every once in a while. Not too bad, but every once in a while guys would kind of tease me about it, you know, and, and those with the kind of, you know, 
you know, that kind of Vietnam mentality of just calling everyone Charlie and lining them up as a target, you know, but that, that kind of thing, I, I really wanted to know the mindset and why they thought that way and why they believed the things they believed. Not so I could, you know, get close with them and be buddy, buddy, but so that I could, I, you know, in a way, in effect, learn how, learn how to, to, to defeat them. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's, it's interesting because for obviously for a number of years, Iraq was a, a really bad place um, for anybody, for Western forces, for Iraqis, anybody. And I think th- there wasn't a, a, a major change until um, there was an uh, an effort was made to to build with uh, the Sunnis, and I, I believe they call it the, the Sunni Awakening, and um, it, it was. You know, during this period where things really started to turn around because the um, the foreign fighters really didn't have a, a sanctuary. They lost the support of the people. And once they lost the support of the people, then it was a lot easier for coalition forces to target these uh, groups and, and really drive them out of Iraq. And I think that's what really made uh, a huge difference in the, the conflict over there. Yeah, and Eddie, what was that like? You know, this is you know fighting, and I was curious about this because I didn't I didn't fight in Afghanistan. But what was it like the battling against the Taliban, and how were they as an enemy? Um, you know. Yeah, sure. Look, uh, you know, they were very adaptive. Uh, you know, look, you had your low level fighters. You know, the, the the guys that you know that they they get paid. You know. Two hundred dollars US or whatever in Afghani currency uh, to, if they see a coalition, you know everyone over there is referred to as an American. You know, so if they see an American, you know, a British, Australian, but uh, you'll get two hundred dollars if you, you know, fire a two hundred round burst or with a PKM at that patrol when it goes past, and then drop the gun and run. And then you've got your hardcore guys, you know, that you know operating units or you know unit structure, and you know they. I think they're just a very, you know, it's a, it's a it's a country that is steeped in warfare. It's it's often referred to as the the graveyard of civilizations. You know, it's it's there's a there's a very famous book called A Bear Came Over the Mountain, and uh, it was written, you know, about insurgency warfare in Afghanistan. And uh, yeah, look, you know, they you could see that was why the um, Type of op combat operations that we were conducting over there evolved over the years. You know, we, we, we initially start well, when I initially went over there in 2007, we used to do a lot of sort of large scale um, vehicle vehicle mobility operation. You know, like we'd, 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 we'd assemble as a company group, we'd go out, um, you know, we'd drive around in our vehicles. Um, a lot of the, you know, only a few of the vehicles were, you know, fully armored vehicles like. Uh, I don't know what the what the new what the new um, large armored vehicle that the US is using, but it like uh, not not like an MRAP, but more like a um, you know like a Humvee, a souped up Humvee. You know, we we've got a version of that called a Bushmaster. So we'd have we'd have Bushmasters and uh, and then a combination of Land Rover uh, cut downs uh, that had no armor. You know, they had very limited armor, and you know we'd drive around and we we we. You know, at times, you know, we might hit an IED or, you know, we had a very, very um, successful and, and supportive uh, special operations engineer regiment with us at all times. And those guys were just 
outstanding at their job. You know, like they they cleared the IEDs for us. Uh, you know, they, they you know they they had a very high success rate. You know, they've they've lost a few guys as well, but they they really ensured that we could operate effectively. And then on my next deployment in two thousand nine, we we were we were still doing vehicle mobility operations, but we pretty much all of the vehicles that we were operating in, with the exception of a few of them, were were, were up armoured, were like, you know, the heavily armoured um, vehicles. And then, uh, yeah, because the, the Taliban are just, they're very adaptive, you know, like they're, they're very adaptive. Um, there's eyes on you at all time. You know, the moment you you leave your your combat outpost or your, your patrol base, uh, your FOB, they're reporting on you. You know, they, they, they are reporting on you the whole time and uh yeah and, and then towards the end the, the majority of the operations that i was doing on that last deployment were, were primarily half um you know like you know helo in uh land as close as we could to the target or the or the area that we were to disrupt and um and then again like we were just staying off paths you know like doing everything we could to to avoid the ied threat but you know unfortunately you, you can't pick them all up and that was their biggest. That was their most effective tool against us. Was was the IED? Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. The you know, like the dynamic of like the transnational uh, ideology we we call terrorism. Um, recently, uh, King Abdullah of Jordan he he gave an interview, and they were they were kind of talking about Donald Trump for a little bit, and. Uh, Syria, ISIS, and then kind of he touched on like the broader threat of of, ter- of global terrorism. And one thing he was talking about in the interview was the um, the need to hit all these groups at the same time simultaneously globally. Like not so like if you know all this fighting is going to happen in Syria and Iraq, and you know eventually ISIS is going to get pushed out. At least uh, for the most part, they'll get pushed out. But then he said a lot of these fighters are just going to go back into Africa or they'll go back into the Philippines or something and and they'll hide out there or or continue their operations there. And it's like he said, you know, the way things are happening now is, you know, in two years, then they'll they'll make a a larger push into Africa after these groups have kind of, uh, you know, got their teeth into into these areas. and he was just talking about how that's not the right way to do it, and we kind of have to do it simultaneously, and um, you know, with you know, with the results of the the Arab Spring a couple of years ago, uh, a lot of countries were destabilized, and in those environments is where these these groups thrive, like uh, like Libya, for example. There was a, um, I know there was a big a big battle there a couple of days ago, and I think in in Tripoli, uh, between like all these small. Uh, militant groups and um it, it's really just chaotic and i think the the jordanians have kind of an interesting take on on the whole uh terrorism thing tim did you want to comment or yeah um you know that's that's it's just like like i said before you know with uh you know like i, I spoke before to eddie was you know, it, the 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 dangerous part of it is just the idea, and and like you and all these different groups, you know they, <clears throat> the you know for us like where we were in Iraq, it was uh, Taji, and it was like 
the the time that we were there, it wasn't that bad, but it was in that Sunni triangle. They called it the triangle of death for a while. Um, and it was just a ton of sectarian groups coming together in those areas and, and, and battling it out, you know. And so that was the real danger was you didn't really know who, you know, you really didn't know who you were fighting against in those areas. Right. And so the, so the idea... You know, I mean, it's always like I think when we talked about it with Tyler Gray, uh, John, when we had him on, was just that we're always going to be fighting a war, yeah. right? I mean, when's it? I mean, he he could say that King Abdullah can, and and he's very intelligent, and smart. But guess who's going to be committing the troops to go to those places? Right. Not Jordan. Right. It's going to be us. It's going to be Britain. It's going to be Australia. It's going to be the big alliance nations that are going to be sending. So, so yes, that's probably the most effective way is to is to. Um, but you know we, you know we just cannot really. We can try, but we really can't have a presence every single place. You know, and 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 that's the problem is they go to those rat holes. You know, it's like they go to the places where you're not. Uh, where, where we're not at. And, and where the area is destabilized and they, and that idea is really just a leech and it, and it becomes bigger and bigger with, um, you know, with the more disen, with the more disenchantment there is, with the more disenfranchised people. Um, so that the dangerous part about it is just, like I said before, the idea. Right. And it's like, how, how do you defeat an ideology? You know, it's, uh, you can't. So you're battling against it constantly. And that's, you know, like Eddie said, you know, and you experienced in Afghanistan was, you know, those guys were like, hey, you know, come at us. And, and I remember the, you know, we dealt with high value detainees. So we were transporting like these really, really, really bad guys that had, you know, books that looked like telephone books. I mean, on them, you know, with, with records that would make you sick if you got halfway, if you got a, a fourth of the way into the book. Um, but if you, if, if, you know, when I was reading about a lot of these guys, it's like, and, it, you know, hey, and a lot of them would say to us, was like, yeah, you guys go ahead and have your fun right now, but you'll be gone in a few years and we'll still be here just like we have been for thousands of years. And so- yeah, that, that, that's exactly right, Tim. And, you know, I, I uh, you know, I just, I, the, the Taliban had a saying, you know, um, the co- like the coalition have got the clocks, but we've got the time, and uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's true, and uh, you know, look, there's people that are still over there doing good work, you know, they're they're they're, they're trying to find a viable solution, and uh, you know, look, war is 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 not, you know, we all, we all know it's not black and white, it's 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 a grey space, and uh, it's about improvising. And uh, you know, adapting and and just continually trying to beat it. But yeah, like you said, it's it's a, it's a difficult proposition when you're facing a an overall ideology, and then you take into account, you know, the 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 internet, how easy it is for people to communicate all around the world. You know, it's 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 really. Um, I mean, I, I think they're trying their hardest to, you know stop a lot of this sort of cross-border migration, immigration in a lot of these major countries. Uh, but like you said, you know, a lot of those African countries and, you know, Libya in particular, John, you know, you mentioned that before. It's it's very difficult for people to sort of try and control 
areas around, you know, that North African region, you know, there's so much corruption. Well, anywhere, you know, there's corruption everywhere, but, you know, those people just, they, they melt away, they'll disappear, they'll pop up in another area and then they'll do the same again. And, you know, that that's a, that's a real challenge that, you know, global coalition partners are facing. And, and, you know, something that we, we talk about all the time is like one of the greatest things in this, about this culture nowadays is also one of the worst things about it in, in technology and the ability to communicate. And really one of the things that saved the, you know, the United States in a lot of, uh, one of the things that's, you know, that saved the United States in a lot of instances is the geographical, uh, barrier, you know, of having those oceans, uh, between us and having that space. But now with social media and, and, you know, it's, you can get that idea out there and then that idea floats over here and it becomes networks and cells and all those kinds of, you know, all those kinds of other issues now we're facing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Just, just recently there was an issue. Um, I think it was Ohio state. Uh, there was a, a Somali, um, Somali born, I guess he immigrated to the U S or he was a refugee. I'm not sure. And, um, you know, he, uh, ISIS, he, he, so basically what he did was he drove a car into a crowd of people on campus. Then he hopped out of his car and started to stab people. And, and one of the security guards on campus shot him. I think like within a minute of, of him, like running all these people over. So it, they, they took control of the situation fairly quickly, but, uh, I, I believe ISIS had taken credit for it and said that he was like, you know, a soldier for them, and, and you know, and, and, and that's really just an example of what you guys are talking about, you know? Yeah, and then look, like, two years before that, or three years before that, and we've already kind of forgotten about it, but, you know, um, in, you know, Moore, Oklahoma, which was a, you know, a town I've been to for baseball in college, but there's nothing going on there at all. It's just a typical middle country town, and, uh, you know, a guy comes back into work and chops his coworker's head off. Oh, yeah. And, and, um, that was, you know, that was as a, and people said, oh, he had mental issues and okay, well, the reason he'd been released from his position in the first place was because he was making statements about women in the workplace and how they shouldn't be there. And then he comes back two days later with a machete and, 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 uh, you know, chops that woman's head off. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, you know, I mean, i, I there's been a lot of recent uh, activity in the United States, you know, and, and we've had a, a lot down here too that, you know, a lot of it largely goes unreported because I think our law enforcement agencies like to try and, you know, maintain, you know, their operational security, which which is, is good. But then still we, we have the same problem down here with a lot of young guys, um, you know, they're, 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 they're pissed off, you know, they're, they're anti uh you know, anti GWAT, obviously, because you know the, the, their ethnic background or their, their religious ideology, and uh, yeah, it's just a, our, our law enforcement people down here have, have got a constant. Uh, there's constant media reporting going on down here, open source reporting about you know people plots being foiled and people being intercepted, and you know I think for a lot of people out there, it, it is quite frightening. I mean, because. You know, we, we like to live in a safe uh, democracy, you know, and, and I guess, you know, yeah, that's just the, that's just the result of, uh, of what's going on. And, and, again, that goes back to, you know, 
the, the propaganda machine with with ISIS and how it's so effective. You know, you mentioned John social media. Um, you know, Tim mentioned the the internet, like how easy it is just to get online. I mean, they they have the, in a very effective way they've harnessed that, and uh, you know, a lot of young people around the world that you know are disillusioned and and you know for whatever reason they they access that and they you know they get brainwashed and uh you know and unfortunately these terrible things terrible things occur and uh but uh, you know i mean that guy the other day at the at the university campus john what what do they say never bring a knife to a gunfight yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> yeah he got dropped pretty quick i i think he the, those guys did a good job you know the security officers yeah, he done messed up. <laughs> he came in there. He came in there with a knife. It was a bad idea. And you know, it, it was crazy because there was a uh, some. I think one one of his uh, fellow students at, at the university uh, had interviewed him. I, I don't remember what the time was. Maybe it was a couple months ago. And I think he said something to the during the interview. He said something to the effect of, "You know, I you know I don't like how." Um, Islam is perceived over here. You know, a lot of people think that we're just like killers and and all this stuff. But then he goes on and and attempts. He, I, I don't think he killed anybody, but he certainly attempted to. You know, and it's just it's just crazy to see how people kind of are, are brainwashed. And even with you know with the uh, the radicalization of a lot of uh, Muslims is you know. What these guys are like, their doctrine, their indoctrination process, they really take a small part of the Quran and a small part of the message, and they kind of twist it to to fit their ideology, you know. Because the you know majority of Muslims are peaceful people, but there is a large number who are radicalized, and and that's really you know where the problem lies, you know. Well, and and one thing that I you know that was that what you were talking about was like a humans of New York thing that they're doing in Ohio, but oh yeah yeah it was yeah like. It was like, uh, you know, a lot of the things that he had said, Eddie was like, oh, you know, I get, I hate how people perceive us, and you know, the lack of prayer rooms really bothers me on campus, and and I don't like those things. I wish people didn't look at me, you know, uh, a certain way or think that, you know, we were all radical like that. And I'm like, bro, you're not helping your case when you're driving your vehicle <laughs> into people and trying to stab them to death, you yeah. know, like. That's not going to help your cause on campus there, you know. So I, I wonder what happened during that time if he was already on the way, you know, into into doing something like that. But it wasn't that long ago that he made the statements. No. So, um, yeah, I think, um, I mean, like, I can't, I can't comment on that particular incident because I, I've, I've only seen what I've read on open source reporting down here. But, uh, you know, the... This, the situation down here is, is almost the same. You know, the, the you read the stories in the papers, you know, like and they say, you know, the, the guy, it was it, it was noticed within his school or at his university or even within his family that he, he'd become, uh, you know, he'd segregated himself and, and, and had started, you know, prescribing to that kind of ideology. And, uh, you know, I think that they're trying to – they've got an initiative down here at the moment. I guess it's it's similar in some regards where they're, they're really trying to engage with the, the Islamic community with their leaders to try and sort of work out a way that they can engage with these younger people 
But as you know, I mean, it, it, that, that's that's a very difficult task, and and they're trying a, a number of initiatives to take care of it. And yeah, yeah. The problem is, is like, okay, if you know, if we can, if we can identify in a way where we can come to those organizations, and we can be like, okay, we all agree that you know, maybe you think this way is the best or whatever, but we all need to, we all need to get along. And if your ideology is that of real law belongs in place or that that's just not going to work like you know you shouldn't be you should you really shouldn't be here if that's your ideology if you think sharia law needs to be in place and you just shouldn't be here like that's because that won't work under our democratic system it doesn't work right and so that in itself is you know that if if we're going to these places we need to have a very clear understanding of yes <clears throat> You need to fit under the American system of law or the Australian system of law, and and that is of a democratic nation. Um, if you can't, then we're just not going to be able to get along. It's just not going to work. Yeah, and you know, uh, kind of another angle of this whole kind of conflict is really, you know, the, the way we are fighting. And, and obviously, so... You know, they kind of call the wars we're fighting today low-intensity conflicts. But obviously for the guys on the ground, it's not low-intensity if you're getting shot at. But, um, you know, the way we fought in World War One and World War Two, it wasn't, you know, you can shoot at us and then throw down your rifle and then, you know, we nothing nothing will happen to you. Um, you know, the way things happen in World War Two, if you shoot at us, that entire area is going to get blown the fuck up. So it, it's... It's different, and they, in my opinion, they really, they survive based on the rules of engagement for coalition forces. Because if we wanted to, we could just bomb the entire Iraq into smithereens. And, and, you know, but obviously that's kind of inhumane, and there's a lot of people who aren't fighting and, and don't deserve to be killed in, in, uh, in a situation like that. So really these, these groups, they really, in, in a kind of ironic way, they survive because of the rules of engagement that Western forces have when when they're uh, fighting in these places, you know. Oh, and Eddie can, you know, I'm sure Eddie can speak to that. Even you know, and I could speak to it in Iraq, and Eddie can speak to it in Afghanistan. Is like the the rule they know they know our rules of engagement better than we do. Yeah, I mean, I, I know it's probably true for you guys over there, man. But like by the time I got to Iraq, it was like. They got to raise the weapon at you, fire five times, and then announce their name to you, and then tell you exactly where they're from, yeah. <laughs> and then you can shoot back. Like you know, I mean, what, that, what, that, that was what like year my was it, Tim? That you went this to was, this was oh nine, so we were like the last combat brigade in Iraq. Okay, so um, you know that, that I was, think it had really changed by that stage, Tim. You know, like it yeah. had really, yeah. Oh yeah, because it had gone to the stage. Oh, sorry, you go ahead. No, I'm sure what you were facing was different, but I knew, you know, I had Marine buddies that were in Helmand Province in Afghanistan, and they, they described the same kind of frustration with their rules, you know. It was like, dude, you know, there are times where we know the guy's bad, and we know we need to take him out, and we just can't. And, uh, you know, doing that as a Marine is tough to do, you know, like holding back uh, for any grunt. Yeah, it's, uh, look, you know, it certainly did, uh, you know, like what, we all we all prescribe to the you know the laws of armed conflict and you know the Geneva Conventions and I, I've heard Chantel talking on a previous uh, podcast about some of the frustrations that 
the British guys face down in Basra or yeah. Basra. And, uh, yeah, look, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people in a lot of areas uh, did, uh, you know, experience that because, you know, there, there was so many incidents that, again, you know, like warfare is, is, a, is a 24-7 televised um, social media feed these days, you know, it's, it's and, and something something gets out, you know, like, and I, you know, there might be a firefight in a village, you know, and then something gets put on social media and then all of a sudden it becomes fact. And, you know, I think it drives a lot of um, decision-making process at the higher levels within, you know, politics and I don't want to get into politics but uh with regards to the the guy on the ground you know I mean you said it Tim and it's it's very difficult when a round's being fired or whether it's a, an IED's been initiated or a, or a, a burst from a machine gun or a RPG or whatever you know that you know you're you're in you're in the fight of your life you know like you you've got to you've got to get out of that situation get your team out of that situation and with 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 measure and control but at the end of the day the game state is to get out of there and um yeah. with your team and and yeah it's it it, 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 it is you know i mean I, I i don't believe it should be a free for all i, I you know it's, it's it has to it has to have certain rules but when you're fighting against some somebody that's not applying any rules it makes it very very challenging right and and uh you know something that you guys you know on, on my side it's like you know with you guys you got you know, you're very highly specialized you you you're working on these you know movements i mean i remember you know seeing some of the special operation units train and you know the precision was just incredible but in many cases you know, over there, it's a 19, 18, 19, 20-year-old kid making a decision in 0.4 seconds, you know, when you're clearing a room or something like that. And that's and that's that's harder than most people realize, you know. that That's harder than most people could possibly ever understand, um, making a decision in that kind of time frame. Um, you know, it takes an incredible amount of discipline. Yeah, exactly, you know, and, and uh, you know, we... Uh, our infantry guys um, from that from our um, big army, our regular infantry guys that you know they were they were over there in Afghanistan and they were in some you know they were in some pretty bad areas you know op- operating out of you know small patrol bases and and doing a lot of foot mounted patrolling, engaging with the local community and and uh, you're right you said it exactly then Tim you know a lot of those young guys you know they've 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 signed up they've gone through basic they've gone through their you know, employment training, the uh, infantry school, they get posted into their battalion and then next thing you know, they get their orders, you know, and you know what it's like when you're a new guy. I mean, I, I was an FNG once myself, you know, you, you, you don't know, you just sort of, your head's on a swivel and you're going, gee, like I'm, I'm here, I'm with all these experienced guys, what do I do? And yeah, we, we, we had a lot of young Australian guys over in Afghanistan that were put in those situations, you know, and, and some pretty heavy fighting, um, you know, and, and yeah, like, you know, when you, you, the, you, the aim of the game is to achieve your mission, but, but also to get out of there with your, with your team and your buddies. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, it's laws of armed conflict are, are a funny thing, you know, the, 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 it's like politics and religion. It's, it's a long conversation. Yeah. Yeah. So, and so, you know, Eddie, what's for you, 
you know, you talked about not going completely gloves off, which I understand and respect that completely. For you, what what would be the you know way to go about it? You know, it's a it's a long winded answer, I'm sure, but you know, as far as battling with terrorism, you know, I ask that question to every guy in my blog. Is like, why is the battle so complex? Which we've already addressed, um, but what would you do to to counteract that you know what what would your be your way of of dealing with this you know with these conflicts because it's, it's a 3d battlefield you know it's not it's not the same as fighting the lines like when we're fighting the nazis or, or, the, or the japanese you know yeah look i you know i mean i'm i'm obviously not you know qualified at the strategic level planning uh you know it's but my personal opinion, just from my experience, is, uh, you know, I think I've heard someone on the podcast before describe it as a that game at the fair where you, you've got the gophers coming up and you're trying to hammer their heads, you know. <laughs> and it, it, it is, it's true. I mean, I think, you know, that there has to be, there has to be some way of, you know, you're never going to change, I don't think you're ever going to change a, a grassroots ideology, you know, but I think you can reduce the temptation to prescribe to it by getting people employed, getting them education. Some won't want that, you know, but I think just jobs, you know, uh, a lot of those guys over there, you know, they, they, they had no work, nothing, you know, and, and like I stated previously, if, uh, you know, the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or, you know, in Iraq, like the, you know, Shia, Shia, you know, Marty Army or something comes to a guy and he, he's trying to feed his family or something and they say, look, we'll give you 200 US dollars to go and put this bomb on the side of the road and then make a call with a cell phone when you see the Americans or the Australians drive past. And it's very hard to sort of to, to beat that, you know, because – and so I, I think, you know, look, my, my personal opinion for what it's worth, my two cents worth is – I think some of these guys, you know, you're never going like you're not going to change them. It's 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 that's that's their life. That's who they are. But the ones that are on the fence, I just think like if they can somehow or other get them get them get them employment, like within their own local community or you know economy or something like that, and just get them get them out of the mix. Uh, that that's all that's all I could really think. You know, some of these guys, you know, they, they are going to have to continue targeting these cells and. Domestically and abroad, and and not not just you know here, but over where you guys are in Europe, it is. It's a three D. It's a global problem, and it, it, it it's a it's a it's a conundrum wrapped in an enigma. Right, John. That was something you know you had a, a couple of weeks ago, and I a guy I interviewed uh, for the project, Donnie O'Malley, who's a captain in the Marine Corps. But that was kind of the <clears throat> kind of the basis of what he said was, you know. Hey, you know, bomb everyone. Well, that's just stupid. You know, like you can't, right. you can't just go scorched earth and just destroy that whole area um, because you know it, it creates more issues in other places. Um, who see, you know, they see us just as killing savages, and so okay, well, well, we'll go ahead and join up now that the U.S. is doing that kind of stuff. Um, so, te- you know, he talked about tech, you know, being really one of the uh, one of the things that would help us win the battle is like helping helping get new jobs helping these guys over there in their in their homes you know because 
it is very tempting when you don't have, you know, you're you can't put food on the table, right? And you're like, how am I going to? And we're not offering the resources exactly, you know. Uh, the Taliban or Al Qaeda can pay way more than we can, so really, you know, these these uh, these guys they they need more jobs. They need they need to, you know, they need occupations. Right, and it's you know it's interesting. <clears throat> I'm glad you brought that up, Eddie. Like, if you want to look at uh, Somalia, right, as an example, they had a, um, you know, with their pirating, I believe it was maybe five years ago, six years ago, there was a huge spike in pirating, and they were uh, hijacking a lot of ships, uh, Somalian pirates. And then I, I believe the international community came together and kind of cracked down a lot on it, and um, there's been less of it, but... Um, with these Somali pirates, they were in in certain areas. They were big on uh, fishing, and and that was their their industry. That's how they made money. That's how they ate. And then you have a lot of these huge multinational corporations uh, coming through their waters and just fishing all the fish out. And now there's nothing left to fish. And so it's like, what do you do now? You know, you don't have you you lost. You know your 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 father, your grandfather, your great grandfather for generations. This is what they were doing, and now it's no longer available. Uh, so what do you do? You know, it's like you you have some AKs, you have boats. You know, you, you know how to navigate. So you just start you start hijacking ships from the same countries that uh, destroyed your livelihood. You know, and and in a way, it's like how can you blame these people? You know, because what what would you do if you were in that situation? So uh, I think. The point you made, Eddie, is is really spot on because uh, in order for these this ideology to survive and in order for these groups to thrive, they need to be in an environment where it's just absolutely chaotic, where there's no security, there's no structure, there's there's no way that money can be made in a place like that because it's so violent. And um, I think uh, that was the, the Jordanian terrorist, that was his... His goal when he, when the Iraq war was starting to kick off was his goal was to destabilize the region, and once that happened, all sort of uh, craziness comes out of that, you know, and and uh, and and that's what Iraq was, and then it it kind of stabilized for a while, and now it's uh, back on the chaotic path. But um, really, I mean, you know, th- this terrorist type of ideology doesn't really thrive in, in places where people have jobs, where people are secure. I mean, there, there are some, there are incidents of it, but not nearly as much as in places like Africa or the Middle East. So I, I think it's a great point to bring up. Yeah, sure. You know, um, I think, you know, Somalia has been regarded as a failed state now, I think, for, for a number of years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I've got a couple of buddies that, that that went over there with the Australian infantry and, you know, like not that they tell too many like stories about, it. I mean, nothing comparable to, um, you know, task force ranger and, and, um, you know, the black Hawk down, which, which I know you, 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 uh, you mentioned a bit, John, you know, but it's, uh, you know, I remember one of the guys telling me that, you know, just the poverty over there, you know, I mean, I've never, I've never been in, in Africa. I've, I've never seen it with my own eyes. I can just, you know, relate to what I've read and what, what I've heard from some friends, but, you know, just horrible, you know, stories about, you know, the desperation. And, uh, you know, look, Tim, back to what you were saying about, uh, I think Donnie's comment about, you know, 
scorched earth policy and, and you know, bomb them all and, you know. Yeah, look, you know, I mean, I think, uh, like, there was a period of time where, you know, in the, in the middle of it all where there was at one stage where I, th- I was thinking, you know, is this the answer? Like, is this, is this the answer to solve this problem? Because it, everything was just seemed to be problematic. But I think, you know, we're, we're trained, you know, to improvise, adapt and overcome. And, that, and that, that's on a soldier level and, and, a, and a team and an operator level. And I think now that I guess that they're, they're sort of trying to apply that on a, on a strategic level uh, globally because it is, it's a constant evolution of, of, of warfare. It hasn't, it's, it's been, it's been evolving since, since it, it, since September 11 started. Yep. Absolutely. And that, and that, uh, you know, I mean, yes, we did give, of course we gave weapons to, um, you know, some of those forces in Afghanistan when they were fighting the Russians, but, you know, I think a large part of that, I mean, was, you know, the Russians had kind of that scorched earth method, you know, where they had spetsnaz and, and these guys going into the villages just killing, you know, man, woman, and child. And, uh, you know, we see what happened over there um, with other groups joining up and becoming a part of the battle um, as they saw the Russians, you know, attack those areas. So it's always it's always a dangerous way to go. Yeah, you know, it's interesting um, because I I know in contrast with Western special ops, like counter-terrorist units, American, British, Australian, and and others, um, you know, if if you're on a team that specializes in hostage rescue, when you're clearing rooms, you absolutely have to be able to make that distinction in, in that millisecond. To are you going to shoot, uh, you know, the terrorist or hostage taker, and make sure that you don't shoot the hostage, right? But from what I understand, uh, the so Spetsnaz is really just a, a translation of special forces. That's what it means. And then within it, they have their um, different units that have different specialties. And I know that um, they, from what I understand, a lot of their direct action hostage uh, or counterterrorism units. They don't make that distinction with um, hostages and hostage takers. And I think uh, there are examples of that uh, where Russians have run operations where they've just killed everybody in the building or in the room versus trying to only kill uh, the hostage takers. Hey, so, um, yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, I mean, uh, you know, hostage rescue counterterrorism is, is, uh, yeah, I mean it is. It's you're protecting uh, you're protecting citizens, you know, your own people, and you know certainly the emphasis on uh, you know precision precision shooting and uh, you know making that judgment call in the split second. And you know anyone anyone that's been over there knows that it, it, it that can be a very difficult uh, you know when everything's going on and everyone just you know it makes it makes their best effort to 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 do that, you know. Yeah, cool. So, hey, so Eddie, man, I just want to thank you for uh, you know taking the time out and coming on here and uh, shooting this shit with uh, me and Tim. Um, you yeah, know, thanks, pre- Eddie. Appreciate, appreciate you coming it, on. Man. Yeah, pleasure, guys. Thanks for uh, thanks for having me on, John. And uh, yeah, look, keep keep up with the podcast. I was really uh, honored that you guys uh, had me on here, and yeah, look, I look forward to hopefully meeting you guys in the future and uh, keep up the good work. 
Yeah, for sure, man. And, um, you know, just just hit me up, man. Maybe we can get you back on in the future. Yeah, no, no problems, man. Take care. All right, cool. Peace. With Eddie. It's always good to get perspective uh, from the people who've been there, done that. You know, I enjoyed the conversation, talking about Iraq, uh, talking about some of Eddie's experiences overseas. Um, you know, the, the Australian special ops community is, is well-respected around the world, and uh, they do really good work. So, you know, going forward, uh, if anybody is interested in having, uh, you know, specific kind of guests on the podcast, if you have any suggestions about who you might want to hear on, then send me an email to podcast at globalrecon.net and let me know. And, uh, you know, I'll try and I'll try my best to have these people on the podcast, uh, try and keep things interesting for you guys. So with that, I'll close out for this episode. If you want to catch up with Tim Kozak on social media, search The Veterans Project on Facebook and on Instagram. His website is thevetsproject.com. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second one is Black Ops Matter. I'm on Twitter at IG Recon. And I'm on LinkedIn, just so it's Global Recon. As always, I encourage you guys to subscribe, download, share these episodes with your friends and family. And that will help keep us at the top of the government and national categories on iTunes and with that, it'll be easier to provide high-quality content for you guys. So with that, I'll close out, and um, we'll see you guys in a couple of days with another episode. Peace. <laughs>